and welcome to Peach Pot, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And we are excited to be back for another episode of Peach Pod. Uh, we are joined, as always, by my good friend, Luke Boggs. Luke, how you doing? Doing good. And uh, we're excited to have back for another episode with us, uh, Cody Hall. He's the former communications director for the Hunter Hill campaign for governor. Uh, Cody, thanks for doing two episodes with us. Absolutely. I'm happy to be back after a year-long hiatus or maybe a little bit longer than that, but I'm happy to be back. Yeah, it has been been quite a while. Um, so for this episode, we're going to dive into a couple of national topics. Um, you may kind of be able to tell uh, the last two episodes were recorded in one sitting, but we decided to split them up for you guys to not give you two hours of listening homework to do. Um, but for this episode, we're going to talk about the uh, meeting that happened last week between uh, President Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, and the nuclear deal that uh, Donald Trump says that he struck with the North Korean leader. Um, and then for our second topic this week, we're going to talk about the issue of immigration. Um, there, it's really not easier to put it into a smaller topic than that, uh, because there has been so much going on uh, between an attempt at a discharge petition on the Hill that looks to be done Um and, and we'll talk about what that turned into, along with plenty of changes in policy from the Trump administration on immigration. And so we're going to dive into that one, too. But but let's start with this uh, summit on North Korea's nuclear program. Um, so if you were sitting there last Monday night uh, watching an episode of The Bachelorette, you would have come across a very different rose ceremony. And that was a rose given from our president, Donald Trump to Kim Jong-un in the form of uh, shared uh, visibility on the world stage and in a high-stakes negotiation over uh, the North Koreans' nuclear program. Uh, President Trump came out of that negotiation saying that he had a deal with the North Koreans to move towards denuclearization of uh, the Korean Peninsula um, or, or of North Korea itself. Um, but there is some debate among arms control experts, foreign policy experts, and and just everyday Americans about what that deal really means. Um, so, Luke, let's uh, start with your view of this summit. Do you think that the president is spiking the ball a little bit too early on the deal he claims to have gotten with Kim Jong-un? Uh, y'all can't see me, but anytime I say deal, just imagine air quotes, um, because this is nothing like this is the biggest nothing ever. It, so to, to frame to frame this, peop, anybody that's like, oh, Donald Trump got Kim Jong-un to sit down. What a great accomplishment. No, it's not. They've wanted that forever. They have always wanted to sit down with us because their goal is to look legitimate and look like people are paying attention to them. And they're, they're attention horse like that. I mean, it's, there's no other way to put it. And so it was no accomplishment to get Kim Jong-un to sit down with an American president. It was a failure because every other president uh, who had half an idea about this issue had, had set many preconditions to sitting down with Kim Jong-un. For the deal that they got, I mean, it's it's nothing. It's that we will get rid of our nukes, we promise, smiley face. And Donald Trump gave them ending uh, our military exercises in the Korean Peninsula. And there's no verification. There is no timetable for how any of this is going to work. To put it simply, anybody who says that this is a good deal, that says that this is something we should be excited about and criticize the Iran deal is just morally a failure at the job of being an advocate for this country because this is nothing. It is the biggest nothing and it is the same people that criticize the Iran deal that are logging this. And I just, I, I just frankly can't stand it and don't see why we're talking about it because at the end of the day, Fox news put it best. It's two dictators having a uh, photo op. <laughs> well, Cody, I did see a little bit of self-reflection from a few conservatives who seem to realize that some of the same criticisms that they had levied against the Obama administration over the Iran deal, that uh, this deal was either equivalent or worse in terms of, uh, dealing with a regime that they find to be really terrible and um, to do so without any kind of preconditions. 
Um, but there was definitely a split between them and Trump supporters who seemed to be happy to applaud anything that the president did. Um, what do you think about this split among conservatives? And, and do you share the view of some of the um, the liberals and the Democrats that, that this deal is a big nothing burger? So, and, and you know, my, my concern is that it's worse than a nothing burger for a couple reasons. Um, I think from my reading of the text of the deal that they put out the other night, um, the only thing we seem to have gotten in return for a lot of concessions was the return of the remains of a few um, either POWs or the remains of Americans or our allies that we wanted returned back. Um, as Luke mentioned, there was no talk of inspections um, or verification that any nukes would be destroyed. There was no timetable for the next round of negotiations. There was no timetable for any of the points in the in the so-called agreement. Um, and I think that was what most concerning to me. I felt that we gave a lot away in terms of the handshake, all of the flags being um, displayed in what seemed to be an, an acknowledgement that, that North Korea and America are on the same kind of footing. That's neither morally correct or a good idea in terms of foreign policy. Um, there was no talk of any human rights violations. Um, Otto Warmbier, the individual who came back from North Korea and was essentially brain dead um, after being fine when he entered North Korea, there's a lot of things that either were not brought up or were given to North Korea in exchange for, from my reading, is only a reaffirmation of the previous speech Kim Jong-un had given in terms of what he was committing to either in South Korea or it was the name of a South Korean town previously this year. So there was no concrete advancements other than a reaffirmation of the things he had already said. Yeah, I think this one has been, in some sense, a little tough for Democrats to swallow because Democrats were very defensive of the Iran deal and of the way in which Trump kind of toyed with it and then ultimately left it without any real plan for what would be next um, and sort of leaving our partners in Europe in limbo trying to uh, to to keep that deal going. Um, you know, Democrats really brought in, ushered in by Barack Obama winning the 2008 primary against Hillary Clinton have sort of switched to being more open to diplomacy with really anybody. Um, but that diplomacy typically comes with at least America staking the claim on some of the things you were talking about, Cody, on, on the human rights violations, on the way um, that a, a totalitarian ruler treats his own people. Um, and so I think there's some impulse among Democrats to kind of root for Trump that this is, you know, when it when you compare it to war, this is the preferable strategy of trying to do diplomacy. Um, but at the same time, not having a lot of confidence that Trump is the right person to be doing this. Um, it almost may have been better if Dennis Rodman was the one in the room with um, with Kim Jong Un, at least maybe he would have gotten a little bit more of a concrete uh, commitment from from the North Korean leader on denuclearization. Um, the way in which I think that this is a, has a really big downside risk and the way in which it would have been better if this summit had never happened at all is that Trump has kind of already spiked the ball on this. He's already said mission accomplished. The North Koreans are no longer a nuclear threat and everyone can sleep more soundly than they could when uh, Trump was elected. And so, you know, the process here for these negotiations moving forward is that now Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and other people in the State Department are going to continue these negotiations, try to come up with a timeline for denuclearization um, and try to come up with an inspections regime and and come to an agreement on all the nuts and bolts of how you actually get this deal done. And, you know, interestingly, Barack Obama had struck this kind of deal with Iran. I mean, there, you know, despite the complaints from conservatives about this deal, there there really weren't Republican or conservative leaning government officials early in Trump's term that would say that the deal was not working. Um, you know, Jim Mattis, 
said that the deal was working. Rex Tillerson, former secretary of state, said that the deal was working and they had to kind of pull Trump, you know, by his teeth to get him to recertify this deal every time that it got brought up. And so now they have to sort of replicate the process and try to come to a similar setup on a deal that they just left with Iran and then try to assert, try to assure to North Korea that if North Korea actually does decide to make any of the concessions that they maybe will make or maybe will not make, that America would be a reliable partner in that. And if that doesn't happen, how is Trump going to react to what he thought was a great deal and and his big uh, foreign affairs accomplishment being taken away from him by um, by the leader of North Korea? I do want to make the quick point that I I agree with a couple of things that the Trump administration has done. I, I agree with putting far greater pressure on North Korea in terms of sanctions. Um, I think that has been one of the main reasons why we have seen a little bit of movement prior to the summit. In, in in Kim Jong-un and the North Koreans not testing missiles, um, kind of sitting down with the, the, the South Koreans. Um, and I am also open to the rationale of, look, we have to at least be open to or pursue dem- or the diplomatic negotiations with the North Koreans because the strategic patience of the past has not worked. And I'm, I'm open to that rationale because it hasn't worked. There has been no real change in the North Korean regime since we've adopted this kind of wait-and-see posture. But at the same time, I, I just I don't see concrete commitments from the North Koreans um, in any deal that has been published that make some of these concessions we've um, entertained reasonable or make them make sense. It, it, I mean, the the thing that we all just have to know and uh, accept is that the North Koreans are professional extorters. They are better than anyone else at it, and they're really good at getting it from the United States. And, you know, Kim Jong-un is roughly 34 or 35, because apparently there's a discrepancy about how old he is. But regardless, uh, he wants to be the leader of North Korea for a really long time. That is his goal. Uh, whenever he took power, he killed a lot of people around him. He is very savvy. And I don't I don't think there's any other explanation for his actions than he thinks Donald Trump is a president that can be duped on this stuff, and he's pretty much proven that to be true. And, and I don't think if you're Kim Jong-un, you have any belief whatsoever that Donald Trump or the United States will actually stick by any deal that they come up with you with. And so I, I if if I had to guess, uh, their strategy is that they're going to pretend like they're trying to do the right thing. And then when we pull back on anything that we do, uh, they'll use that as an excuse to ramp everything back up and basically just play chicken with us and be like, you know, it'll put North Korea in a position of uh, attempted moral superiority and being like, well, we tried to work with the West and see how that worked out. So now we're going to go back to what we were doing before. So this is the thing that scares me about that outcome is then does Trump see that and say, okay, this diplomacy thing was a terrible idea and I can't believe that this guy, Kim, you know, screwed me over. I thought we had a good relationship. And so, you know what, let's just take him out because he certainly has that element of thinking within his administration with having um, Bolton there as a close advisor to him. And so to me, I I just don't see unless we see concrete steps towards denuclearization or North Korea can fool us into thinking that that they are denuclearizing, um, that Trump doesn't say, all right, screw it, we'll just take the guy out. You know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that um, that doesn't come to pass because I'm hopeful that regardless of this first step that didn't have what a lot of folks wanted, um, that perhaps they can get more concessions um, or concrete concession from the North Koreans in the latter stages of this negotiation. I, I think the president and the White House have been open in saying that this is going to be a multi-step process, and I'm hopeful that it does work out in the end. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful that even though it, Trump is, is kind of quintessential in his, in his ability to walk back commitments that were not um, in, in stone, um, and if you know his commitment on the war games ending 
and a couple of these others are yanked back if North Korea is not willing to come to the table, um, I think that could potentially provide a little bit of an opening for Secretary Pompeo or whoever it may be in the next round of negotiations to get more concrete concessions from North Koreans. Another interesting element of this among the conservatives who have been over backwards to defend Trump on this was comments from Senator Tom Cotton to Hugh Hewitt. To the people who are declaring last question, Senator Cotton, that Donald Trump gave away too much with the flags and the handshake, what's your response? There is a school of thought that the United States should not sit down. The United States president should not sit down with two-bit dictators. Um, I think there's some validity to that school of thought, uh, with the exception once those dictators have nuclear weapons. Um, you know, countries like Iran and, and Cuba and other two-bit road regimes don't have nuclear weapons yet. They can't threaten the United States in that way. Once North Korea have nuclear weapons, once they have missiles that can deliver us, uh, I would liken it to pre- past presidents sitting down with Soviet dictators. Um, it's not something that we should celebrate. It's not a pretty sight, but it's a necessary part of the job to try to protect Americans from a terrible threat. Tom Cotton basically made the argument that the difference between Iran and North Korea was that North Korea already had nuclear weapons and therefore was a threat to the United States. And Iran did not have nuclear weapons at the time. They had a nuclear program and concerns about progressing towards having nuclear weapons that could either uh, completely destabilize the Middle East or or put targets on the map for them further away from Iran. Um, and so Cotton sort of implied that, you know, if you get nuclear weapons, then you're going to gain the respect of the United States out of a necessity of us to defend ourselves. Um, and so if you want to get to the negotiating table with the United States, the best way to do that is to try to, you know, make some nukes. Um, what did you guys think about Cotton setting that standard? Am I am I overinterpreting what he was trying to say there? Or or did he just set a dangerous new precedent for uh, America's adversaries around I, the world? I mean, the thing that needs to just be realized and accepted is that there's a very simple equation in every Republican's head when they talk about these issues. Barack Obama equals Iran deal, deal equals bad. Donald Trump equals North Korea deal equals good. And they will say whatever they need to say to make that make sense. And they don't really care about what the policy consequences of that will be because they are aware that we have a commander in chief that will say A equals A one day and A equals B the next day. And so I don't think there's any credibility in anything that anyone says, and especially not Tom Coggan on anything that Donald Trump does. Unfortunately, that's that's where we are right now. What do you think of what he said, Cody? That um, I think I've seen a snippet of that conversation between Cotton and Hugh Hewitt. Um, I don't. I didn't read the full context of it. It would be. Um, I do not think it's in the best interest of America to set the precedent that you get nukes and then we negotiate with you. Um, that may end up being the end result of a rogue regime or a dictatorship obtaining nuclear weapons. Um, but I don't think that should be said in public. Number one, much less by who I believe is also on the. Uh, on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, so I, I don't think that's a precedent we need to set. But um, I, in, in a kind of real politique angle, I kind of get where he was coming from, that, the, you know, perhaps one of the main reasons we're having to sit down is because he has multiple nuclear weapons that could be put on missiles to either hit the coastal United States or a number of our allies. Um, I understand the rationale there, but I'm, I'm hoping that, in context, it, it didn't seem as outlandish as as the small kind of snippet I saw did. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this is there was a lot of uh, anger and frustration with Barack Obama for not bringing the Iran deal to the Senate and, and getting it ratified as a formal treaty. There was a vote that kind of approved the Iran deal, but it it left it in the status of sort of an executive agreement that you know republicans you know all pretty much all the republicans i think in the republican primary in 2016 telegraphed that you know this deal was not something that republican a republican president was going to hold themselves to um lindsey graham i think has been pretty aggressive about wanting a treaty to come to the senate for this and he i think already has drafted up sort of a break glass and emergency authorization of military force or authorization of the use of force with 
North Korea if if this was to go bad um does do do we have any indications of whether Donald Trump will have sort of a smooth sailing in terms of getting uh Republican members of the Senate to uh, coalesce around this deal is he facing a potential problem there or or do you think that he's fine I I think if there is one um aspect of the duty there's one aspect of the duties of Congress that they are willing to stick up for themselves on. It is foreign policy or the treaty aspect of what the Senate in particular is is supposed to be at the forefront in dealing with. Um, I, I think that any formal agreement is going to be pushed um, by Republican leadership in the Senate as a formal process in the, in the case of a treaty or whatever it may be. Um, because I, number one, because I believe that they prefer that option. But number two, they see what happened to the Iran deal, that it was not signed off by the Senate and was able to be reversed with the change of an election. Um, and I don't think Mitch McConnell or any of the other Senate leaders would be interested in that happening with any Korean deal with um, President Trump. Luke, this uh, summit between North Korea and the United States took place right after uh, the G7 meeting between uh, the United States and some of our allies, European nations and Canada. And it was reported that Trump really did not want to go to the G7. He showed up late. He left early. His focus was on North Korea. And by the end of the weekend, he had been uh, firing off angry tweets at Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And his uh, trade advisor said that there was a special place in hell for Justin Trudeau. Um, It stood out to a lot of people that Trump seemed to have a much more cozy relationship and seemed much more comfortable with leaders like Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin than he did with leaders of some of the world's biggest democracies in in Canada and Western Europe. Um, what do you think of the, the, the different, um, different projections of American values and American power that came out of the G7 and then the North Korea? I mean, I've stopped overthinking this because I think it's very simple. Barack Obama liked Justin Trudeau. That means Donald Trump does not like Justin Trudeau. Like, Donald Trump's political persona since 2011, roughly, has been, whatever Barack Obama is, I am not. And so, like, Barack Obama was useful and friendly to the G7, and we pushed American priorities to the G7, so Donald Trump will not be those things. And so, I I just, I think, I think it's just that simple. Like, that is, that is what they're doing. Um, And as far as, uh, you know, being buggy-buggy with Kim Jong-un, why wouldn't he be? Kim Jong-un has very obviously established what Donald Trump would like to be as president. He would want to receive constant praise and have statues and portraits of himself everywhere and have complete and utter deference because that's what he's had in his businesses uh, since, you know, he uh, he's never faced opposition to what he wants to get done in his life and he's never had a situation where he tells people to do things and they don't just do it and on on that front it's not surprising that he's having a lot of trouble working with people who have their own independent bases of power and don't have to listen to him and their you know future success is not completely tied to how much does donald trump like them and you know it's it's just not surprising to me that this is what happened because it's what's been happening. It seems to what will be continue to happen as he works on the foreign stage is that he just will oppose anything that Barack Obama was for and will do anything that he was against. I do think it goes a little bit deeper than that though, given the differences in trade that that Trump seems to think that he has with some of our allies. I mean, he's in the midst of trying to renegotiate NAFTA and considering whether or not to even blow up NAFTA and try to come to two different deals, one with Mexico and one with Canada. And he's, you know, throwing tariffs at anybody, uh, you know, within range of, of his throwing arm. I'm, I mean, I don't know that he is diving deep into the issue and, and has sort of a real substantive difference with some of these leaders. 
Um, but I think the fact that he has been talking about trade and then now perceives that uh, leaders like Justin Trudeau and Angela Merkel are his adversaries in terms of trade, that he, you know, he he does benefit domestically and, and to his audience by trying to demonize those people and and sort of bring them into the sort of left right divide of American politics and saying that you know these people are taking advantage of you in the same way that establishment Republicans did in the same way that elite Democrats did that they didn't care about you um, and and I'm going to fight for you in terms of securing good trade deals now whether or not he has the knowledge or the patience to actually do that. Um, and, and he clearly doesn't seem to believe that we would be better off cooperating in terms of trying to get better trade deals. Um, he feels like he's got to fight for these things. Um, but it, it definitely, I think is, is a central division between him and, and people who have been traditionally allies of the U S. I think that's a very good point, Kyle. Um, and I think that to add on to that, I think, um, Kim Jong-un has presented president Trump with the opportunity for a deal. And I think that um, more so than our counterparts in G7 or even in Europe, I think this president is very interested in trying to cut deals, especially ones that um, I think he has even said that it would be one of the hardest, you know, or the greatest deals ever. Um, so I, I think if the opportunity to secure that and then something is, um, that they could certainly paint as a win. Um, I think that's one of the main reasons why he's so interested or so preferable or has a preference for the, the, the North Korean issue um, in contrast to his um, antagonistic relationship with Canada or some of the folks in the G7. Let's wrap this up by bringing this back to Georgia a little bit. Um, this is an issue that has popped up in the Republican primary uh, runoff between Brian Kemp and Casey Cagle. Uh, Casey Cagle, kind of amusingly to me, uh, said that Donald Trump deserves to get a Nobel Peace Prize for his uh, little meeting with Kim Jong-un. Um, to me, it feels more like a Nobel participation trophy, given the fact that he didn't really bring home much of substance. Um do either of you think that ultimately this matters within the Republican primary, or is this just kind of another example of uh, Republicans trying not to get on the wrong side of Trump voters? I think this was um, an attempt at the KO campaign to get good press, in their opinion, following the um, significant rounds of bad press. Um, I don't think it's really a, a runoff deciding issue. Um, for a number of reasons, but, you know, it's, I think that if President Trump was able to get a deal that was, that include, include verification and timetables for the denuclearization of North Korea, I think that is worthy of a Nobel Peace Prize. I don't think this deal does it. Um, it may be the first step in that, but it's not here currently. Um, so that's a little bit of a premature call in my opinion. I'm a strong advocate for not giving sitting presidents Nobel Peace Prizes until their their term is up, because I think it's just very easy to be premature with them, and especially with something like this. I mean, even talking about it is is premature. Well, you know, the thing is, I don't I don't think many Democrats would sort of be offended at Republicans saying that. Obama did not deserve his Nobel Peace Prize for a getting elected president and b making a speech in Berlin. I mean, I, I think a lot of us are are sort of sensitive to you know the history making aspects of his presidency, and and there's a lot of things that he accomplished that Democrats are proud of. But I, you know, if if uh, Trump did get a Nobel Peace Prize on this, and then later on the deal fell apart, and and Democrats were sitting there and saying, "See, did he really deserve the Nobel?" I feel like his ardent supporters would be like, "How could you say that about our Nobel Peace Prize winning president?" Um, and and it, you know, I think we on the Democratic side kind of think, you know, Barack Obama is pretty impressive. He did some good things. He may not have deserved the Nobel on day one of his presidency, but. Uh, you know, we still think he's all right. I mean, really, uh, I hate that we've spent 30 minutes talking about this topic because it's stupid and it's it's nothing because this administration wanted a photo op and they got one. That's that's pretty much we could have just said that. And I think we would 
gone just as much into it as we needed to. Well, let's move on uh, to the issue of immigration. Um, so there's a lot going on in this issue on the Hill and and with the Trump administration, but I kind of wanted to ground this conversation in um, some really horrific things that have happened as it relates to immigration in the last few months, uh, because I think this is an issue where when you look at the Trump administration and you look at this consideration of whether or not he is competent or capable of doing bad things, it's it's easy to laugh at some of the things that he does and be like, yeah, you know, he causes a fuss and, and Fox News loses their minds, but but, you know, mostly everything is okay. On the issue of immigration, that is clearly not the case. And and so there's some things that have happened in the last few weeks that I just wanted to touch on to start this conversation. Um, so this all surrounds increased attention and energy towards detaining people who are crossing into the United States illegally, having policies that I think are much more punitive on people who are trying to claim asylum. And, and the cost of some of these policies has been some really bad things that have happened. There was, there was a man from Honduras who committed suicide in solitary confinement after he was separated from his wife and son as a part of a relatively new Trump administration policy. There was a young man killed by a Mexican gang shortly after he was deported back to Mexico. He was a former DACA recipient who had his DACA status revoked over a minor drug offense. Customs and Border Patrol shot and killed a woman named Claudia Patricia Gomez Gonzalez a few miles from the Mexican border. She was an undocumented immigrant trying to cross into the United States. Um, ICE also detained a 62-year-old man who was a legal permanent resident and has lived in the U.S. for over 50 years. And ICE claims that they can deport him based on a two-decades-old domestic violence charge that he served his punishment for. Um, there were other anecdotes from the border, including a woman who had her baby taken from her while uh, she was breastfeeding the child. There were other parents told that their children were being taken away only temporarily for questioning or a bath only to not be returned. Hours later, uh, there were parents who were told they were never going to see their children again. And there was a recent report from the ACLU documenting actions that were from 2009 to 2014. So notably not a part of the Trump administration, but it includes um, abuse of children or abuse of unaccompanied minor children in the care of our immigration system. This included children punched in the head, kicked in the ribs, being run over by a patrol vehicle, uh, a young woman who was denied medical attention when she was pregnant, a young child who was threatened with sexual abuse by an older detainee, and a 16-year-old girl who was searched uh, where federal agents, quote, forcefully spread her legs and touched her private parts so hard that she screamed. That is a parade of horribles, to be honest. And I just wanted to ground this conversation in some of the real human cost of of our immigration policy, because I think these things happen in places that are probably pretty far from where we are. Um, and I don't know that we uh, sort of internalize the things that people are going through on the border. And so, Cody, with that completely loaded intro, which I know is somewhat unfair, I think a lot of people have been asking whether or not this is the cost of enforcing immigration law. I know Republicans often say that, you know, one of their biggest criticisms of liberals and, and the Obama administration is that they weren't really enforcing immigration law. Um, and so so I'll, I'll kick this to you. Do, do you think that incidents like these are just the cost of enforcing immigration law? Or should we uh, be able to find a way to enforce our laws without having such tragic things happen? Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely believe that if we can enforce the laws on the books and not have these cases um, come forward, that is absolutely the um, the goal that we should strive to attain. Um, I'm kind of looking over here because I think you raise a lot of good points that there are severe flaws in some of, if not the laws on the books, but the um, the standard operating procedures of a lot of our um, immigration enforcement on the border, and I'm looking at a couple of the highlights of the um, GOP compromise in the immigration bill, and one of the aspects that it's saying that is going to be included in this compromise bill is that it would end the separation of immigrant kids and parents, um, which is 
I think something a lot of folks can agree on um, and needs to be included in any GOP immigration bill, in my opinion. Um, and so that's hopefully going to be in the bill and hopefully stays in the bill. Um, and, you know, I, I think there are a number of things I don't agree necessarily with Attorney General Jeff Sessions on. And I think that there are a couple of things in this area, and I know not all of them are under his purview, but um, that we need to look at to try to see if we can, as we were saying at the beginning of this answer, um, enforce the laws on the books, but not necessarily do it in such a way that opens the door up for some of these really tragic things happening. And and we'll we'll come back to that discussion of the the Republican compromise bill. That's a part of some some pretty significant action on immigration that's happening on the Hill. But a lot of the uh, the policy changes that have resulted in some of these horrible things happening are actually just coming from Attorney General Jeff Sessions and the Trump administration. Um, Sessions issued a ruling changing the standard of asylum claims for victims of domestic violence and victims of gang violence. Uh, basically, they are attempting to make it more difficult for people who come to the border from other countries and say that they are uh, persecuted in their home country by either gangs in their home country or uh, from domestic violence issues from from partners in their home. They're trying to make it a harder bar for people to clear to gain asylum status in the U.S. And and part of their rationale is that that there are people coming to the U.S. gaming U.S. immigration law, knowing that if they say they have a credible fear of persecution in their home country, that it's going to be easy for them to get asylum. I don't think that that really reflects the reality on the ground, um, but that is the, the rationale that they raise. The other important policy change from Sessions is this new zero tolerance policy of prosecuting all border crossings. Um, so if you cross into the United States illegally, it is technically a misdemeanor a border of it's a, it's a misdemeanor offense of illegal crossing into the United States. And um, part of how this plays into what you probably heard about, which is this issue of family separations, is that when people cross the border illegally, um, they're usually charged with crossing the border illegally, this misdemeanor offense. Um, if they are by themselves, then they're going to get charged for that. They're often going to the the actual jail time, the actual punishment for that crime is relatively small. And so uh, often people get they get time served counted as the time that they spent in a detention center waiting for their case to reach immigration court um, under this new policy, since they are all being referred to for prosecution by the Department of Justice, if they have children with them, they cannot be in a federal detention center awaiting a trial for their illegal crossing violation and be with their children. And so what the Trump administration is doing right now is separating parents from their children. The children are being redirected to uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, and they're treated as unaccompanied minors as if they've come over by themselves. And the parents are referred to for prosecution. And so this is how we've landed in this situation of, of families being separated. Um, so those are the two of the big policy changes that have taken place. Um, Luke, the Trump administration argues that these things are needed because people are taking advantage of immigration law and we don't have room for them to come here. So we need to have tough policies to serve as a deterrent so that people don't think coming here is a good idea. Is there any rational defense of that view of the Trump administration or or is that just sort of thinly veiled? I, I mean, I, I think, again, we, we're in the era of simple answers, which is Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions promote racist policies. I believe they're both racist people. They are doing this because they think they can get away with it and they think that uh, their base will like it if they are pursuing racist policies. And so that is what they are doing. It's what they promised they would do if they got into office. And so it's not surprising to me that this is what they are doing. Um, you know, the immigration system into the United States is not perfect. Uh, people coming across the border uh, illegally is a problem, but this is not the way that you handle it efficiently or humanely or in a way that promotes the laws that are on the books because anyone that complains about 
um, you know, not enforcing the laws as they stand. Well, you know, that goes both ways. The law currently supports us uh, taking in refugees for, who are fleeing from violence. And this current policy is not going to make it very viable for us to do that. And additionally, if you think that immigration is a problem uh, and that we need to get a better hand on it, separating families is not going to make it very easy or efficient to get a handle on which claims are real and which claims are not. And it's just creating a, a big mess and a really difficult situation to to work on and you know on on every issue it's you know this is just another example of when people are like this administration deserves a nobel peace prize it's like bullshit no they don't they're doing this stuff and it's it's just completely outrageous to even suggest that they deserve any recognition because this administration every chance it gets tries to you know make the united states look like a international asshole and at at that point, I just can't come up with anything positive to say about what they're doing because they they pretty much seem to have two policy priorities, one of which is racism and the other one is to own the libs. And they know that liberals will not like it if they do these things. And so they do them. So one more long monologue for me to set the table on this issue. So so this issue of family separations connects to what's going on the Hill because of the lack of progress that's been made by Congress on solving the DACA issue. Um, so to remind everybody, DACA is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that was established by President Obama, um, and it allowed uh, children who were brought to the U.S. through no fault of their own to gain uh, some sort of uh, work authorization and to have some sort of uh, predictability of being able to be here um, and not be at risk of deportation so long as Congress was unable to move the issue of comprehensive immigration reform. Um, last year, Donald Trump ended the DACA program. He set it on a schedule to end um, six months after his announcement and gave Congress six months to try to figure out that issue, give them uh, some sort of legal status or, or something that was more permanent. Um, six months came and went. Uh, it came and went in March, and Congress had not done anything about it. But there's been a push from moderate Republicans, along with Democrats, to try to keep this issue on deck for the House. Um, and so moderate Republicans were threatening to uh, do what's called a discharge petition, which is basically a bypass around leadership to get a bill to the floor. And they were pushing to have a couple of votes on bills that were moderate immigration proposals that solved the DACA issue. Um the Republican leadership was not happy about this, and so they brought all of the Republicans together for a, a little family meeting and ironed out a compromise between the Freedom Caucus and the moderate Republicans who were pushing this immigration discharge petition. And so now uh, Republicans are planning to have a vote on two immigration bills this week. The first bill is going to be a conservative proposal uh, that was uh, already introduced by Representative Goodlad in Virginia. This is a proposal that reduces legal immigration, gives some status to DACA recipients, um, but is one that is viewed by Democrats as very suspect because it represents the uh, the Trumpian version of immigration um, that Democrats are so opposed to. There's another moderate proposal um, that is a compromise between the Freedom Caucus and the moderate Republicans. Um, the text of that came out today on the day that we're recording on Thursday. And so I haven't dove into that bill for all the specifics. Um, but that is the setup of what is going to happen in the House this week, if you're listening to us on Monday, is a vote on these two bills and trying to come to some solution, at least in the House, on this issue of family separations and on finding some sort of solution for DACA. Cody, this has obviously been an issue that has been a thorn in the side of Republicans for a long time. There's been a couple of attempts at comprehensive immigration reform in the Bush administration and the Obama administration, and they, they both failed every time. And now Republicans have united control of government. Is there any confidence among Republicans that they can move this issue in a way that solve some of the problems people are concerned with, but doesn't anger their base? So I think um, the highlights that I'm looking at, so I'll read through them real quick. It's a new merit-based visa program for up to 1.8 million DREAMers, $25 billion for border wall security, 
Um, it ends the diversity visa lottery program. It limits the family-based migration, ends the separation of immigrant kids and parents, and then ends the catch-and-release loopholes. Um, so I think that's a pretty good outline um, in terms of something that I think can get support in both the House and the Senate. Um, I think the main part there is that it's a merit-based visa program for the 1.8 million Dreamers. I think um, that approach is able to gain majority support in both the House and Senate. Um, and then, obviously, the $25 billion for the border wall and the border security, I think that's probably a non-starter for most Democrats. Um, I think they may be able to pick off a couple of Democrats in the Senate. But I think that if that bill passes or the, you know, the general outline passes, I think that's a step in the right direction. But I, I don't think you're going to see any comprehensive immigration um, beyond those parameters I just laid out because we are going into an election year and um, the folks that are going to go out and vote um, in midterms are they skew more liberal and more conservative on both sides of the spectrum and i don't think that the democrats want to vote for a comprehensive immigration bill that has any border walls funding i don't think republicans want to vote for any um, bill that would um, have a a faint whiff of amnesty. So I'm a lot less confident that this is going to pass at all. Uh, I mean, the good lie bill is basically dead on arrival. They've tried to pass similar pieces of legislation and didn't really go anywhere. And I don't think any of the um, hardcore folks in the Freedom Caucus are going to go for a lot of that compromise bill as described. And so and Democrats won't either. So, I mean, at this point, I think the the more revealing narrative is that uh, many Republicans are unwilling to put their money where their mouth is and support legislation that will fix these problems in a real way rather than being popular political talking points, uh, because that's what the compromise bill is going to do and was explicitly not what the discharge petition was trying to uh, put forward. And so on on those fronts, I think this bill will have a lot harder time than you think, Kobe. Yeah, I think this is going to add to really the frustration of immigration advocates, because now this introduces two issues where at least nominally there is bipartisan support for addressing them. Um, but they get caught up in the meat grinder of the rest of immigration policy and they ultimately are going to get stopped by the most conservative factions in the house. And the fact that the president probably would not sign a bill, um, you know, we could do some sort of standalone fix for the DACA program. Um, we could also do some sort of standalone change to the law to deal with the family separation issue. And the Trump administration so far has had a framework out where they, they really want the, a, they want the border wall, which, Democrats will say that they oppose and will say that it, it it upsets them and it is it is a vanity project to Trump's racism uh, that they want no interest in supporting. If it actually came push to shove that they could improve the lives of some immigrants and, and waste some money on a wall, they'd probably cave on that. Um, but the the other thing that I think Democrats are not really willing to cave on is reductions in legal immigration and changes to the immigration program that are seen by them and seen by their base as benefiting white immigrants that come from Europe and disadvantaging uh, immigrants of color that come from places where, um, you know, some segments of the American population does not want these people to come to the United States. So let's turn this to Georgia a little bit back on this issue too. So the, the Republican primary for governor was really um, a display of almost all the candidates really chasing Donald Trump on the issue of immigration. The most standout examples are uh, Brian Kemp's ad where he said he would round up criminal illegals in his truck and Michael Williams, uh, his racist deportation bus that he drove around the state in the final days of the campaign. Um, but even for for Casey Cagle and Hunter Hill, Casey Cagle filed a complaint with a Georgia Immigration Review Board early in the election season and against the city of Decatur saying, alleging that the city had 
uh, sanctuary policies and wasn't complying with uh, immigrations and customs enforcement the way that they should. And uh, Cody, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I, I thought that Hunter Hill often characterized his support of of Trump's immigration policy as, you know, he stood with President Trump in enforcing immigration law. Um, I do think that Hunter Hill did not make as big of an issue of that as some of the other candidates did. You know, does this push to the right from conservatives on the issue of immigration in this environment where a lot of people are seeing some of the horrific things happening on the border? Is that potentially a liability, even though this issue doesn't really fall on any policymaking levers of state government? Right. I, I think why you saw this as an issue is because um, the overwhelming majority of media outlets that Republican primary voters and Republican voters in general are getting their information from are folks that have been um, pushing this narrative of, of sanctuary cities of illegal immigration for years. Um, and not only um, in talk radio, but on TV, um, online websites. So the whole host of ways that a lot of Republican voters are getting their media, getting their information, is filtered through a, a an anti-immigration or a um, anti-sanctuary city mindset. Um, so I, I say that to say that that's probably one of the reasons, or probably the main reason, why a lot of campaigns chose to focus on it. Um, and it was a top polling issue. So a lot of times you, the campaigns out there are going to reflect the will or the opinion of voters out there. And that's just the manifestation of what the voters were wanting in terms of um, Cagle, Kemp, and even Michael Williams and his, his deportation bus. Although there are, there's no excuse for some of the stunts that were pulled, including um, Williams's bus, um, but the reason why is because voters care about these issues. Um, and regardless of whether or not it's a state or a federal issue in their minds, um, they want their candidates at all levels to be talking about it. You know, Donald Trump is a racist. The Republican Congress won't bring for a vote a bill that they would support and be able to overwhelmingly pass because they are afraid of their political constituencies rebelling against them. I mean, that that's the moral of the story and that they will stand by uh, people dying and families being separated because they are afraid of being beaten in a primary by a right-wing whack job. And a lot of these same issues that are like coming up in these bills, especially the, the family separation or the kids being held in cages, were an issue in 2014. And, I mean, the Obama administration didn't put forward an, a comprehensive immigration bill. Um, I mean, that effort probably ended with Eric Cantor's loss in 2014, but... Um, this, you know, there have been problems in the immigration system far beyond when President Trump became president. Um, and these issues are going to continue probably past the time that he is no longer president. Um, so, I mean, yes, it's an issue because the, the Congress is controlled by the Republican Party and we have a Republican president. Um, and, you know, it is, it's incumbent upon Republicans to lead at this time, but I don't think we can pretend that immigration has either A, just become an issue, or B, wasn't an issue whenever Barack Obama had overwhelming majorities in both houses of Congress and chose to pursue Obamacare instead of an immigration bill. Yeah, I'm not saying that. It's just uh, what, I, what I'm saying is that the ball is now in their court and they are fumbling it consistently um, and that the Trump administration has gone out of their way to make immigration a bigger problem uh, and has not really offered any permanent solution that has any chance of working to fix it. Yeah, I mean, I think that this this raises a couple of really important issues. Um, the way in which the Trump administration has made it worse is particularly as it relates to enforcement on the border and and what they're doing on these issues of asylum Um you know, previous under previous administrations, if you were trying to claim asylum, you were uh, you the the crime you committed by potentially crossing into the country illegally was actually sort of overlooked um, because if you won your asylum claim, you were going to get to stay even if you committed the misdemeanor offense of an illegal crossing in the border. Um, and then the view of the Trump administration that a lot of 
people who are attempting to cross the border and claim asylum, that they are actually lying about it and, and gaming immigration law. Um, but this does get compounded by the fact that people's views of the Trump administration is that they are racist and, and punitive on immigrants and so that they're paying more attention to this. But it, it raises a thorny question, I think, for liberals and for the progressive insurgency of of people from the left in the Democratic Party. There's a push right now um, from the far left to abolish the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency. Um, it's a relatively new agency that was created in the government reorganization post 9-11. And a lot of people look at that and they say, this was an agency that was created with combating terrorism in mind. And that is why we have some of the the terrible outcomes and terrible policies that we have. And so there's really no loss in getting rid of this agency. But the question that is going to be hard for Democrats to answer, and I ultimately do think Republicans don't have a path forward on solving these problems. And so, you know, if, if there is a a pretty big swing back towards the Democrats after the 2020 election. This is going to be another question that that faces them is what does interior immigration enforcement look like if you think that deporting people, separating families, pulling people out of communities that they may have been in for a long time, if you think all of that stuff is racist and terrible and things that are not acceptable for progressives, um, because there will be absent the adoption of completely open borders and getting rid of all immigration enforcement at all. There will be people who cross into the country in violation of the law. And there will be a big question as to what you do with them in a way that is humane in a way that is clearly not being practiced by the administration right now, but in a way that, you know, doesn't just completely violate the laws that the Congress has passed. And so I do think that that is a thorny issue that remains for Democrats moving forward. Well, I don't I don't think it's nearly as thorny as you lay it out. The issue here is not that there is no consensus in the United States government of what to do. There is a very large majority of Democrats and Republicans that have obviously some minute differences, but like there's a very basic proposal uh, and, you know, a, a perimeter of things that everyone agrees on. And the thing that has not happened is not that people don't know what policy proposals would be able to pass with a large majority is that they cannot procedurally get those things to the floor. And if Democrats do take over uh, the House, I imagine what, you know, middle of the road Republicans remaining after uh, those losses would probably be able to go along with uh, those proposals and that what a Democratic House would pass would more than likely make it through the current Senate that we have, in my opinion, um, because there's not a whole lot of disagreement. There's a lot of cowardice going on here. And I think if faced with a vote on a piece of legislation that will probably pass, um, that Republicans will vote for it. I mean, outside of the far right, I, I don't think that there's a lot of disagreement with the idea that most of the estimated 11 million people that are here without documentation should get to stay because many of them are law-abiding citizens who just happen to be here without papers. And that and there also isn't a lot of disagreement on the some of the horror stories raised by conservatives about deporting people who have committed serious crimes. I mean, you're not going to find a Democrat who's going to say, yeah, this person killed somebody, but we'd really rather them stay in the country. I mean, there is agreement on that. I think the thing that is going to get difficult is once we've sort of cleared that 11 million and and maybe given citizenship to most of them, um, and we've made some adjustments to try to make our legal immigration system fairer and easier for other people to, to comply with what happens to border enforcement at that point. Um, because there, I think there are still going to be people who are going to come to the border to try to claim asylum and not really understand the process that they need to go through to do that. And there, it will always be mixed up with, um, issues of crime that, that are happening on the border. And, and so, you know, liberals and progressives are going to be pushing for as little enforcement as possible, I think. And, and any sort of enforcement action is, is going to be seen as, you know, potentially being carried out by a government with racist motives. And 
Um, I, I do think that that question is harder to answer than, um, than you guys might. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I definitely think it's not going to be as difficult as you lay out to come up with a humane system of border enforcement and a clear, you know, understanding of what requirements someone has to have to come into the country legally. And, you know, I, at, at this point, I think liberals and progressives and what, you know, whatever label you want to put on the left would be very interested in finding some alternative to our current system and ensuring that the atrocities that we've been seeing don't happen again. Uh, so I, I feel, I feel like, there'll be some room for uh, enforcement actions in some capacity to ensure that we don't see what we're currently seeing again uh, in, in whatever proposals a potential Democrat Congress would get through. All right. Well, I, I think that we can leave that topic there. Um, definitely lots of questions for both Democrats and Republicans moving forward on this issue of family separations and, and the DACA issue. I'm not uh, positive about uh, the outlook on that. But, uh, you know, I retain the ability to be surprised as always. Um, but with that, I think we're going to wrap up this episode. So, uh, Cody, thank you so much for coming back and uh, joining the show again. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. And Luke, thanks as always. Yeah, thank you. It was good to have you back, Cody. Uh, happy, happy you can hang out with us a little bit more. Yes, sir. All righty. And we will leave it there and we will talk to y'all next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.